This story starts in February 2011, in a little compound in Afghanistan. There was a big family sleeping in the compound, and they were woken around about one o'clock in the morning by the screaming sound of helicopters coming down, the great Chinooks and a couple of small attack helicopters had settled in and around the the compound. When they woke to look outside, they could see uh, dim figures of soldiers coming at them from the darkness. They had their kind of infrared sights flicking the windows and doorways of the building. These were British troops, and they asked all the inhabitants of the house to step outside. So they all came out one by one, you know, hands in the air, into the courtyard. And the women and children were sent off to an outbuilding at the side. And the men were plasticuff, by which I mean they, they had these plastic uh, handcuffs around their wrists in front of them. And they were hooded. We have spoke at length to Sy Fuller, who was, at the time was, was a 19-year-old and he last saw his father being plasticuffed and hooded. Because he was younger, Saifullah was sent with the women and children to a different building. The raid went on around them for about an hour and a half. While Saifullah was in the outhouse, he could hear shots occasionally, bursts of gunfire. Eventually, the soldiers said they were leaving and they weren't to leave the outhouse until the helicopters are gone. And once the helicopters are gone, he went back into the house to try and find his father. And when he got to his father's bedroom, he found his father there, slumped against a wall um, with eight to ten bullet holes, mostly in his head. As Saifola walked around the compound, he found a trail of bodies riddled with bullets. An uncle, a cousin his brother. It looked to the family as if they'd been shot in the back while they were running away. That brutal night is something the Insight team have been investigating since 2017. And now they've seen evidence that the men behind these killings were part of a rogue SAS unit that killed 33 people on 11 night raids in the first three months of 2011. It seemed to us extraordinary. People could have been handcuffed and captured and then then killed within an hour by British troops. But we don't know what the SAS claim happened as, as a result of court documents that were released only last week. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, an insight investigation. The SAS Killing Squad. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tonight's scheduled episode of Something in the Air has been moved to tomorrow night so that we can bring you an ABC News and Current Affairs special. The first strike against terrorism as a missile barrage lands on Afghanistan. We will not falter and we will not fail. Peace and freedom will prevail. The Taliban claims Osama bin Laden was unhurt in the raids and the world waits for the next move. Kunar province on Afghanistan's eastern border is as alluring to outsiders as it is unwelcoming. It's a key transit route for militants from Pakistan, confronted by Americans in some of the fiercest fighting of this 10-year war. Good evening. Nearly 10 years ago, America suffered the worst attack on our shores since Pearl Harbor. This mass murder was planned by Osama bin Laden and his al-Qaeda network in Afghanistan and signaled a new threat to our security, one in which the targets were no longer soldiers on a battlefield, but innocent men, women, and children going about their daily lives. I'm Jonathan Calvert. I'm the editor of the Sunday Times Insight Team. And I'm George Abuthnot, and I'm the deputy editor of the Insight Team. Take me back to, to that period in 2011. What exactly was the SAS? What was their role in Afghanistan? So the regular army was doing the normal on-the-ground fighting, but the special forces were charged with trying to take out the kind of high-level Taliban commanders, um, what some of the officers describe as a kind of scalpel. And the way they did that was using a tactic of, of, of night raids in which night after night they would fly out in helicopters and land on the compound of Taliban suspects and they were supposed to then pluck them from their beds and and take them back to detention centres. But we've spoken to various SAS officers who were there at the time who raised significant concern around the fact that they felt that they were operating on quite sketchy evidence in Afghanistan that was unreliable and there was therefore significant concern that they weren't targeting the right people. I mean, that's fairly shocking. And particularly because at at the time, British soldiers were supposed to be operating under a policy of sort of courageous restraint and not shooting if they could help it. Can you just sort of remind us, just for a bit of context, what was happening in the war in Afghanistan back then? So the war had obviously resulted from 9-11 and that that had led to the invasion in the early 2000s. And the war had been going on for almost a decade which was far longer than anyone had ever expected it to at the beginning. So there became a real desperation to try and reach a stage where they could declare kind of victory and then they could start withdrawing troops and try and leave the Afghan authorities in a position where where they could preside over a fairly stable Afghanistan. And what that resulted in was around 2009, they decided to do a major surge of troops, uh, the Americans and the British, to try and turn the tide on the, on the Taliban and bring the war to a close. And so all these um, night raids that where concerns have been raised 
are all during this period when they're they're trying to ramp up the pressure on the Taliban. And the Special Forces night raid operation was part of that. And this is where the concerns have then arisen. And and indeed, the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan has done a study on the number of civilians who were killed in night raids by special forces between 2009 and 2012. And they believe that um, at least 195 civilians um, were killed um, during those operations. It's an incredibly high number. I mean, what what do we know about this specific squadron and and how they were operating? So they appear from the documents we've um, secured and have begun their tour at the end of 2010. And they seem to have been carrying out night raids at an absolutely furious pace. The SAS had previously been operating in Iraq, where they had been much more educated and more technologically savvy and technologically equipped population, which allowed the special forces to have far more intelligence um, from their electronic intercepts of who was an enemy and who was a civilian. But in Afghanistan, it was, a, it was a much less sophisticated society. And the SAS wanted to carry on doing these night raids at the same high tempo night after night in Afghanistan. But they found that the, that the intelligence was less good. And so it meant they weren't as accurate um, in identifying the people that they needed to be targeting. In each case, the SAS had captured a male family member and sent them back into their empty home to clear the way ahead of, as a search of the premises. What had then happened was that in each case, the SAS had claimed that that person had conjured up a weapon from inside the house, and at that time, they were shot dead. So these are all people that they'd captured, all 10 men, in that short period of time of three months that they then sent back into a house and all did the same thing. They all decided single-handedly to take on the might of the SAS and were all cut down as soon as they tried to do it. It's a pattern of behaviour that, from all the emails we've seen, everyone was starting to think was super suspicious. The next morning, after Saifullah's father and other members of his family were killed, an argument broke out between the Afghan forces and the SAS the Afghans were appalled by what had happened. An Afghan Special Forces partner unit called the APU had been supporting the SAS troops on the mission. One disclosed note shows how they were furious because they believed four innocent civilians had been murdered that night. The job of placating the APU fell upon a senior officer from the Special Boat Service. In a note written on the day of the killings, The SBS officer said he had just had a very difficult meeting with the APU's colonel. He said two of the men had been shot trying to run away, that the other two were assassinated after they had already been detained and searched. The the meeting then escalated even further when one of the Afghan soldiers drew his pistol and asked permission to shoot his SBS mentors. The APU colonel made clear his troops would no longer work with the SAS until the issue was resolved and would raise the matter of a special unit of the Afghan police that deals with serious crime. For Saifullah, it was the start of a long campaign to seek answers. He began with the authorities in Afghanistan, and now, nine years on, he's still pursuing the case through the British High Court. It was the disclosure of evidence at this trial that has now, finally, brought to light documents showing how much the military knew. The documents 
relate back to the night of the raid on Saifullah's family compounds. And they they give us a kind of extraordinary insight into what happened immediately, immediately afterwards. So what we can see is that the troops flew back from the mission. And within a few hours, a mission report was drawn up and circulated amongst the SAS troops. And what we can see is that one of the emails is an SAS troop sergeant major who sees the reports and has been sent, but he can't access it on his computer. And so he, he writes back to a colleague and says, Is this about that unit's latest massacre? I've heard a few rumours. And then his colleague right, replies, Yeah, mate, I'm only hyperlinked in and can't attach them. Basically, for what must be the tenth time in the last two weeks, when they sent an Afghan man back into the room to open the curtains, he reappeared with an AK-47. Then when they walked back into a different room with another Afghan to open the curtains, he grabbed a grenade from behind a curtain and threw it at the sign. Fortunately, it didn't go off. This is the eighth time this has happened. And finally, they shot a guy who was hiding in a bush who had a grenade in his hands. He couldn't make it up. So quite clearly, even people who who were working in that environment sort of thought this was, you know, they were, they were incredulous about what, what was being reported. That's exactly what these emails certainly suggest. And then further up the chain of command, we can see others reacting in the same way. So there's an officer commanding within the special forces who also sees the operation summary and, and has the same reservations. He asked Riley on an email to some of his senior colleagues. Has anybody come up with an explanation as to why all the Taliban are beginning to adopt the previously unobserved tactical practice of, one, re-entering buildings during the search phase and coming back out with a weapon against an overwhelming force, i.e. the SAS soldiers, two, keeping grenades in their pockets? So the commanding officer of the SAS there was aware of the complaints. I mean, that does show that the chain of command were aware of the concerns. Absolutely, because the ma- the major then went back from that meeting and immediately wrote an email copying in the Special Forces Command and describing exactly what had happened. So and this was within only a few hours of the mission. And what he reported back was that the the APU would absolutely not accompany the SAS on further missions going forward because because they were so disgusted with, with, with what, what they'd seen. And is there any sign from the documents that that, that triggered any kind of alarm uh, or, or, you know, sort of a sense of something needs to be done? Yes, there is. We have a note from somebody who, who we believe is one of the highest officers in special forces who was very concerned about it. He had been told by Special Forces commander who had come back from Afghanistan that there were reports that the SAS were just killing men of um, fighting age, even if, they did, if they, even if they weren't putting up a fight. And he was so concerned about this, he wrote a long, long memo back to headquarters about it. And, I mean, he says in his note that he's very disturbed by the allegations and he's quite shocked that troops would do such a thing. The emails show a senior officer was then asked to do an analysis of the SAS unit's raids. He singled out 33 killings in 11 missions over a three-month period that were particularly concerning because the deceased had either surrendered 
and been captured before they were killed, all because there were more dead bodies found at the scene than weapons. That then led to a special forces commander being ordered to investigate the issue, but we don't know what he found because the MOD has not released that documentation. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu com code GLOW. My name is David Collins. I am the Northern Correspondent for the Sunday Times. And before that, I was part of the Insight team. David was a key part of the Insight investigation when it first began in 2017. Three years on, the release of these documents has proved that the Insight team weren't the only ones who were alarmed by the actions of this squadron. People inside the military were too. So any reporting around the Special Forces is incredibly difficult. It's really tough because it's a secret world. It's so secret that even Parliament don't have any form of scrutiny over Special Forces missions. There isn't a single body, there isn't a single select committee in Parliament that has the authority or, or the power, really, 
to look at special forces missions. And in, in those terms, we are an outlier in a lot of Western countries. You know, the US has a, a Senate body, um, the Armed Forces Committee, that provides some level of scrutiny. We have nothing. And part of the reason is because the, the level of security clearance required to look at these classified missions and paperwork around them is very high. So there's only one, the Select Committee for Intelligence, they do have um, a certain level of security and it's thought in theory they could potentially look at Special Forces missions, but it's never happened before. And I'm, I'm giving that example because I think it's important to understand how secret this world is. Yeah. And the, the way we dug into it really is by approaching military police, royal military police officers who were investigating allegations of war crimes in Afghanistan. We spoke to special forces, soldiers, current and retired. We spoke to senior army commanders. We spoke to government officials, lawyers, witnesses in Afghanistan, basically anybody who could shed some light upon what has happened with these night raids in Afghanistan and what the SAS were doing. And to date, we spoke to more than 50 people. Many of them are government officials or retired special forces officers. In one case, we spoke to someone very senior in the Royal Military Police who had direct knowledge of the SAS and their conduct in Afghanistan and the investigations that the Royal Military Police were conducting into that. And what were they able to tell you? What he revealed was that he confirmed the suspicions, essentially, that there was a pattern of behaviour here with the SAS that they were very extremely concerned with. And that pattern of behaviour involved going into compounds and killing civilians and putting down weapons next to their bodies, which is a practice known as drop weapons. So the way that we think the SAS were operating in the way that the Royal Military Police uh, had evidence that they were operating, and now we do have evidence that they were doing it, was that the SAS would go into compounds, they'd arrest people, they'd put them in plastic cuffs, or they'd go into a building and, and start firing, which happened on a couple of missions. And after the compound was under control, if you like, they'd go looking for weapons. Now, if you don't find weapons and the person didn't have them at the time, then there's question marks over whether or not they were Taliban or whether or not they're innocent civilians. And whether they were really a threat to you. Which is a key point, really, because if you're, if you're not deemed under threat and you kill somebody, then that is a potential breach of the Geneva Convention. And in a couple of cases, one case, for example, which is another extremely controversial case, they went into a compound and they killed four young Afghan males Two of them were aged 12 and 14. Oh, kids. Children, yeah, kids, essentially. And the explanation of the British government on that one is that there were two Taliban commanders out of that four. And the explanation that they give is that, oh, yes, we found weapons there. Uh, therefore, they must be Taliban, because if you find weapons, then they have to be Taliban fighters. So the evidence we have is that there was a, there was a pattern of behaviour here. They'd go in, they'd either kill people or they'd put them under arrest. If they put them under arrest, they could potentially take them into a building for a search. And during the search, that person would be mysteriously killed 
and they come out of the building saying, oh, he reached for a weapon. If you find no weapons, then what do you do? You can plant them next to the body. You take photographs and you file your mission report and there's no questions asked. Uh, you engage the enemy. Here's the weapon, the AK-47, the Makarov pistol, the grenade. And then you move on to the next mission. So this, according to our senior source at the RMP, the SAS have been using drop weapon techniques since Northern Ireland. This is not a new thing. And after four years of work, really, we're now seeing, uh, thanks to a high court case, we're seeing our, our work is being verified. We're seeing more and more evidence of, of this sort of behaviour. How much of a difference will these documents that are suddenly being released, how much of a difference do they make to what you know of what happened then? I think the documents are really significant because what they show for the first time is British army officers and, and senior people within special forces and people in special forces on the ground. It's their own evidence. It's the words of serving special forces soldiers and officers in emails to each other which reveal concerns over this pattern of behaviour, that there was a rogue unit in Afghanistan that they suspected were going into compounds and executing people who were later thought to be civilians, which is in clear breach of the Geneva Convention. It shows that there was evidence within the Special Forces community that there were suspicions this was going on and the British government knew about it and they covered it up. The reason why it's so significant is that for the first time, we have it in their own words. We have it in the words of people on the inside, people who serve in this secret world. And, you know, don't get me wrong, the SAS are seen as an elite unit throughout the world. They've done some incredible things, yeah. uh, you know, for this country. But nobody is above the law. And that is the point with this reporting that the actions of our special forces in places like Afghanistan reflect upon our country. And if we don't know what they're doing, then how do we hold them to account? Were you shocked? I mean, has it changed the way you look at how we fight wars? I think I was shocked. I was shocked because the scale of what was being alleged. I was shocked by the missions and the idea that our special forces could be capable of execution against the Geneva Convention. And it, these things sound like a, a long way away to people. It's in Afghanistan, we're at war, things happen in war. But we're talking about our soldiers, allegations of them going in and killing children and then covering it up. That is serious for any democratic nation. That is a serious, serious thing. And I think what is most shocking, what I was most shocked at by this case was the idea that the government could try and manage something like that. The government could try and cover up those sorts of allegations because often, in my experience, the actual story is one thing, but the cover-up is worse. And it's always the cover-up in these things that people feel let down by, they feel betrayed by. In a lot of the big scandals we've seen in the last 50 years or so in our Western democracies, it's always the cover-up that worries and bothers people the most. You look at Watergate and Nixon, and you see the anger, really, of the American people over what the president was covering up there. So people at the very highest level of government knew about these allegations, you know, you know, 
Our, our generals, our, our senior politicians, some of our senior civil servants, they knew. And what they set up in 2014 was something called Operation Northmore, which looked at evidence and allegations of wrongdoing by British forces in Afghanistan, which included these allegations against the special forces. And what you saw was the senior commands in charge of Operation Northmore were going to brief Whitehall, Whitehall being horrified, and trying to work out how to manage it as a story, as something that might get out into the public, as something that the country would be embarrassed by. And that, quite frankly, is wrong. They were more concerned with shutting down Operation Northmore and sweeping these allegations under the carpet than they were really in finding out the truth. And that's what we saw. Operation Northmore was shut down. The MOD announced that there was no evidence whatsoever of any criminal wrongdoing. And now we know that's not the case. There was evidence. There were concerns. And there was some evidence of a pattern of behaviour by uh, one specific uh, SAS unit. When we approached the Ministry of Defence, they said the email evidence wasn't new and had already been investigated by the Royal Military Police, which had concluded that there was insufficient evidence to prosecute. But we now know they weren't even able to identify the killers because every one of the more than 40 SAS soldiers and servicemen involved in the operation who were interviewed by military police claimed they had no memory of their actions on the night of the killings. The SAS do contend that they had intelligence that one of Saifullah's brothers was part of a, a group making IEDs, roadside bombs. We've not seen the intelligence, which is actually blanked out in the documents we have, um, but this is disputed by the Helmand governor and by the Afghan special forces who were present at the raid. They think it was a case of targeting the wrong person. What's more, the SAS only had a suspicion against one brother and they ended up killing four people that night, which means they didn't have any intelligence at all against three of the people they killed. And even if there had been a, a Taliban member there, that would not have been an excuse for killing someone in cold blood. Yeah, no investigation, not arresting them. Yeah, exactly. What do the SAS and the army say about all of this? So they have an absolute blanket policy that they never comment on the conduct of special forces. We've been investigating this subject for almost four years now, and we, we put an enormous number of questions to them, and they just come back with... We do not comment on special forces. They also put out a sort of blanket statement saying that the Royal Military Police did not find any evidence of criminal behaviour by the armed forces in Afghanistan. And that's all they're saying? That's, that's all they said. One of the problems the Royal Military Police faced with those investigations is that when they went to all the SAS soldiers involved, none of them were able to talk about it. Uh, there was an emerge of silence they said they didn't remember the incident, despite the fact that four people were gunned down after, according to the SAS account, uh, suddenly leaping out at them, which even the judge in the second hearing noted that this memory loss is frankly quite difficult to believe and suggests a cover-up. The RMP never broke the wall of silence and never got to the bottom of it. Is there a sense that this SAS squadron went rogue? I mean... What does this tell us about how the whole of the SAS was working at the time? Is you know is this is this a one-off? There's definitely concern that it went um, significantly wider than this particular squadron. I mean, we, we, we've investigated two 
other missions that took place in 2012 where allegations of wrongdoing had been made. One of them involved the murder of three children uh, and one young man who were allegedly shot in the head at close range while drinking tea in their home. And that was in October 2012, um, and the killing was by an SAS soldier. What we discovered afterwards, and we got hold of some documentation, which showed that the SAS soldier and his senior officers, which included one of the regiment's most high-ranking officers, were actually referred to the military prosecutor to consider charges in relation to the shooting, but also the subsequent cover-up of the fact that that, that something illegal may have gone on. So there are very serious allegations against other SAS people who were operating during a different period. The other concern is that there have been very similar allegations made against other special forces from other countries. So in America, Canada and Australia, who were all operating hand in hand with the SAS during that period, and which obviously raises concerns that this this was a kind of ingrained culture which which had spread across all of the special forces units operating in, in the country. For the victims of these fierce raids, the wait for justice continues. Sayafullah is back in his village in Afghanistan, awaiting news from the High Court. He's been exceptionally brave and in the way he's kind of pursued it. And I think he'll feel a huge amount of, of vindication um, for the fact that nine years on, he's, he's, he's continued to pursue it. And now, finally, we're starting to to get, get to the truth of the matter. But I think he'll also feel a certain amount of anger that it's taken this long for the government to, to, to show some openness on such a serious allegation. And for both of you, when you see documents like this that you know back up the story that you've been following, how does that feel? And has this sort of changed your view of the way we conduct war? Whenever I think about this story, I mean, there's always a temptation to kind of think that this is a, f- a war a long way away and... Our boys were brave and, and you've got to give them leeway, etc. And, and I, I I completely understand all that. But I always try to imagine it if the tables were turned and say there was a hostile force in this country and which was carrying out night raids on our homes and I was just a civilian journalist and they landed on my, you know, on the road and came into my home and took my kids in, into the garden and sent me back in and shot me dead you know when you when you actually think about the reality of it and put yourself in that position it just hammers home to you how important it is that we hold our troops to account you know the reason that we went into afghanistan was because we wanted to stop terrorism because we felt that we had a kind of moral authority to try and put an end to the kind of awful actions that al-qaeda was doing but the kind of allegations that have been made against our sas is kind of conduct that is comparable to that it's it just it's so important that we do take action because if we don't, then we'll make the SAS feel like they've got impunity to continue acting like this in the future, which is, is just not acceptable for a civilised country. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Jonathan Calvert and George Arbuthnot from the Insight team and David Collins, the Sunday Times Northern Correspondent. You can read more of their work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers today were Poppy Damon and Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Poppy Damon and sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. If you'd like access to more of the investigations and stories broken by The Times, do consider taking out a digital subscription. 
You can go to thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe to find out more. See you soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.